Welcome to In the Know with Erin Glow, a podcast bringing you information and inspiration from people in all walks of life. This is Selective Mutism, the Child's Perspective. Hey guys, welcome to episode one of In the Know with Erin Glow. This episode is part one of a three-part series about the childhood social anxiety disorder called selective mutism. In each episode, I'll be discussing the disorder from different perspectives, which will include the child's perspective, which is what this episode's about, as well as the parent's perspective and the therapist's perspective. Now, normally I'll be interviewing guests on each episode of this podcast, but for this specific episode, I figured I'd take it on my own because of the topic. Now, as a lot of my friends and family know, I struggled with selective mutism as a child, so I kind of know the ins and outs of the disorder, which is why I thought talking about the disorder itself and my own experience with it would be helpful for the first part of this series. My aim for these first three episodes is to raise awareness for selective mutism, which is often confused with shyness, and to just give more information about it and to help anyone involved who may be looking for guidance. Now, the reason I wanted to start this three-part series off with the child's perspective is because I realize with a lot of childhood disorders that we often hear from people on the outside or medical professionals studying the disorder, but we don't often hear from the children themselves who are going through the disorder, especially with selective mutism, because the whole point with selective mutism is that the child is having a hard time talking out loud. So, of course, they're not going to talk about what they're going through at that time. So I figured it'd be interesting and helpful for me to look back in hindsight as an adult now on my childhood and when I was going through this and maybe shed light on it in ways that people who are interested in this disorder or who find themselves involved in it maybe haven't seen before. Okay, guys, before we get started, I just wanted to remind you that I'm in no way a medical professional or a therapist, so I'm not giving any kind of professional advice. I'm just someone who has gone through selective mutism as a child, and I'm sharing my experience to hopefully help people and give them more information about it. Now, the first thing I want to do before I kind of dig deep into the story and tell you guys a little bit about my experience is to define what selective mutism is. And to give you some facts about the diagnosis, causes, treatment, and all of that. Now, this definition is from a nonprofit organization that I work with that specializes in helping others with selective mutism. They're called Selective Mutism Association. They're a wonderful organization. And this is how they define selective mutism. Selective mutism, which is formerly called elective mutism, is best understood as a childhood anxiety disorder characterized by a child or adolescent's inability to speak in one or more social settings. Examples can be at school, in public places, with adults, now despite being able to speak comfortably in other settings. So let's reiterate that. Um, So when the child is put into a new social setting that they're not used to or comfortable with, they most likely won't speak to either adults or children their own age in that social setting but they'll speak perfectly normal at home because they're used to being in that social setting with those adults and children. So they'll speak to those adults and children at home, but they won't do the same thing in a new social setting. And usually the first 
social setting that's new for a child and you recognize this is at school, which is what happened to me. Okay, so that goes hand in hand with the next thing I want to speak about, which is signs of selective mutism. So if a child has selective mutism, these are the signs that they would portray. I'm going to read them off here. Number one, a child, like I just said, doesn't speak in certain social settings, but speaks perfectly fine in others, especially at home, that they tend to be more comfortable in and with people they're comfortable with. Number two, the child may also have trouble with nonverbal things like participating in group activities and they may socially isolate. Number three, the child may stop speaking even at home when someone other than a family member is present. And finally, these three signs are usually noticed for the first time when a child is about three or four years old and they're put in a social setting such as school where they're expected to interact but they can't. Okay, next are the causes and risk factors of selective mutism. What I'm about to read you is from the Child Mind Institute, and it says because of its overlap with social anxiety disorder, there may be genetic loading for selective mutism. So it may be genetic, um, but some of the other risk factors include temperamental and environmental factors. Now for the temperamental, it may be negative effectivity or behavioral inhibition. And for the environmental, it could include socially inhibited or overprotective parents. Now, as far as diagnosis goes of selective mutism, that should be made by a professional that's familiar with the disorder who can rule out other conditions that present similar symptoms. Since young anxious children have difficulty participating in interviews, particularly if they have selective mutism, the expert making the diagnosis will rely heavily on reports from parents and other adults in the child's life to determine a pattern of behavior across situations. They might request home videos of the child's behavior in his or her place of strength and or observe him or her alone with his or her parents through a one-way mirror. To be diagnosed with selective mutism, a child must be able to speak in some settings but not in others. The condition must have lasted for a month that is not the first month of school, and it must interfere with schooling and social activities. Okay, so moving on to treatment, how a child is treated for selective mutism. Now, as far as behavioral treatments, that's the most evidence-based recommended treatment for selective mutism, and it uses controlled exposure. So the therapist works with the child and his or her parents to gradually and systematically approach the settings where he or she cannot speak, building his or her confidence one situation at a time. The child is never pressured to speak and is always encouraged with positive reinforcement. Now, specialized techniques are used to guide the child's increasing exposure to difficult settings, and the therapist will teach parents and the child how to use these techniques in real-life settings. Newer approaches offer evidence that intensive treatment from the time of diagnosis may prove more effective than traditional weekly sessions. Now, the other treatment is medication. And not every child with selective mutism requires medication. I personally did not take medication in my situation. But some children may be prescribed um, anti-anxiety medications from the start, typically if their initial presentation is quite severe or if they've had selective mutism for a long time and they haven't done well with behavioral or other psychotherapy. It may also be suggested they try medication if they have a very strong family history of similar disorders or if they suffer from other impairing anxiety disorders as well as selective mutism. 
some children will be prescribed medication if the results of an initial behavioral intervention fall short of the desired gains. Many children who take medication as part of their treatment find that exposure tasks become easier to tolerate, making the difference between success and avoidance. Now, the preferred medication for selective mutism is one of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, better known as antidepressants. Now, SSRIs are effective for anxiety, and they're tolerated well by children, but they should always be monitored for the presence of side effects. So with that said, selective mutism was a huge part of my childhood, unfortunately. And I say unfortunately because it gave me the type of childhood that I would say is not normal. Um, It made me very different from a lot of other kids. And it kind of brought a lot of stressful situations to my days. and But it also taught me a lot in the end. Um, didn't really feel that when I was going through it. But now that I am through it, and now that I know what I know now that I didn't know back then, it's something I'm very grateful to have gone through because it has taught me a lot about the importance of using a voice, the importance of not being scared of a voice, and just the importance of becoming who you are through that voice. And using it as a positive tool, not a threat or not a negative thing or anything like that. So the first sign of me having selective mutism was when I started school, like many other children. I was four years old, and I vaguely remember the first day. I I do remember being petrified as soon as I walked into the room with all these kids and this teacher I didn't know, and having to leave my mom and and. I was crying and just feeling completely and utterly anxious. Uh, A lot of kids feel anxious when they're in new situations. That's completely normal most of the time. But this was sort of like a, oh my God, I'm going to die if my mom leaves me with these these other people. It's hard to explain it. It just was this deep, deep feeling of fear. and, And like I just didn't trust being myself with these other people. And... I was just so used to my mom and so used to being with her and being close to her and and I didn't know anything else. So when she was leaving, I just remember holding on to her and crying and crying and crying. And eventually, you know, she forced herself to leave. And I just, (laughs) I just like kind of curled into a ball, not literally, but I was very, put my head down, had my hands, you know, up to my mouth and just kind of tried to hide myself in a way even though I was in this classroom full of children now as time went on I didn't speak at all Um, the teacher soon realized you know I, I didn't speak at all either to the kids or to her and and it was kind of confusing for everybody even for myself and my mom because we had no idea that that's kind of how it was going to turn out I didn't know I wasn't going to speak until I was put in that situation. And then I just felt this tremendous amount of fear and I just froze and, and I didn't want to speak out loud because for some reason I just, it it was like the, the scariest thing in the world to use my voice and have people look at me and, and expect things of me. And that's how I was feeling. So unfortunately I, because of the confusion, because back then the selective mutism wasn't, called selective mutism it was called elective mutism and it was and it was such a new social anxiety disorder that they were still trying to figure out and i think just very few few kids 
even in the world were diagnosed with it at the time. I don't know the exact numbers, but I remember when I was eventually diagnosed, we were told that this was very rare and that they didn't know much about it. It was apparently so rare that some talk show in New York City wanted to do a talk show on the topic, and they reached out to all these therapists across the country to find kids with selective mutism to have them on the show. And the therapist, I think it was, told our family or asked our family if if we wanted to go on a show to talk about it um, with my mom and, and everything and me going on the show. But I was too terrified to do that. And that wasn't even a question. We just turned that down. But that's how rare it was that I had the opportunity to go on this talk show as one of the very few kids at the time who were diagnosed with it. And or I don't want to say it was so rare, but it was not known. <laughs> and most people were mistaking it for shyness. And I think I think at the time, I think when I was going through it was just when they were starting to give it a name and starting to separate it from shyness. So luckily I was treated a little differently and then just being a shy kid who was difficult. But it took a while, and when I did eventually get diagnosed, it was still it was just still so unheard of, and they didn't really know what to expect. But they gave it this name, electromutism, and it basically meant that I just was so paralyzed with fear that I couldn't use my voice out loud. And it wasn't just the voice, it was I wouldn't socialize with kids in the first few years. I was just kind of to myself. And when there were class activities, I just stayed there. I didn't, I didn't move. I didn't follow the teacher's orders. I just stayed in my seat and I just held on to a stuffed animal that I brought to class. And I just wanted to crawl in a hole and die. I didn't want to be around others. I didn't want to show myself. I just felt very petrified to even show these kids who I was. I didn't even know who I was. So unfortunately, the first teacher I ended up having was an older woman who was pretty seemed pretty impatient with quote-unquote difficult children at the time she she wasn't aware I'm not even sure if I was properly diagnosed at this point this was very early on in my first year of of school and I just remember it she wasn't very nice to me and I think she thought that I was not talking to intentionally ignore the rules and be rebellious and because when it got to the point where it was lasting and I wasn't even talking when I was asked to. Uh, I think that's what she thought. It's still a big misconception with kids who have it today because especially if, if a teacher doesn't know what it is, it can be seen as being rebellious, which it definitely wasn't. So this teacher, I one of the, the memories that sticks out in my mind that kind of was traumatizing for me um, was when we were playing a classroom game and we were sitting at this long table and all the kids were we're sitting in chairs around the table, and I was there with my stuffed animal, keeping my head down. And she said, okay, we're, we're going to pass this ball around the room. And when you get the ball, you say your name, and you say your favorite color. And this was, I think, one of the first few weeks of school, and we're still getting to know each other, and we were playing this game. And, and I just remember thinking, when she said that, the whole time in my head, I'm thinking, oh my god, oh my god oh my god, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I can't do this. Oh my god, when the ball gets to me, oh my god, what am I going to do? Oh my god, I don't know what to do. So the ball eventually got to me and I didn't even take the ball because I was just keeping my head down and, and 
clinging so tightly to my stuffed animal that I didn't even take the ball. I was too petrified to even take the ball. So when it was my turn, the teacher took my wrist and she made me like take the ball. She moved my hands to the ball and, and then she threw it over and um, and she said something like, you think you're so special that you don't have to play the game like everybody else? Well, you're not. You need to do it just like everyone else. And, and I immediately welled up with tears and I just started crying and I just remember all the kids looking at me and just the embarrassment I felt and the emptiness and I just started crying and she just eventually skipped over me and said oh you know and and went on she didn't comfort me she didn't do anything like that so and I don't really remember much after that I just remember either that day or a, a day after that because I was petrified to go back there. And there was a day that prompted my mom to go back and uh, talk to the teacher. And when she figured out what was going on, it was, uh, they got into some argument and I was taken out of that school and I was put in another one where the teacher was a lot better, but still didn't quite understand what was going on. But instead of, you know, forcing me to do things, she kind of just let me be. And I was still put into situations where I was expected to talk, but when I didn't, it was kind of just brushed over. But it was so embarrassing for me because I knew what was going on. It wasn't like I was mentally incapable of understanding my own actions. I knew exactly why I was causing this awkwardness. It was because I wouldn't talk. But it was just something I felt like I couldn't control. Like I just couldn't. In my head, it felt better for me to not talk or participate than to be the center of attention and risk feeling awkward. And I always say what's ironic about kids with selective mutism is that most of the time they hate attention because they're so scared of it, yet them not talking and not participating gives them even more attention because they're different. And that's the ironic part. Around the time when I was getting diagnosed or <clears throat> right before I was diagnosed, I actually had to stay behind the first year and, and go through the year again. So I was kept back a year because they didn't know how to deal with this. And I was shifted to another school. And then that's when I was properly diagnosed, and that's when they had a therapist come to the school every week, and it became this, this plan for us. And I was put into the school that I ended up being the school I was in for the first six years of my school years. And the teachers, again, still didn't quite understand, but they worked with a the therapist, and they were told to just treat me normal and treat me like everyone else. And even when situations where participation was expected or talking was expected to give me the opportunity to do it, but it, that if I didn't do it, to not force it and to not put too much attention on it. And from then on, that's how it went for me. Uh, I did eventually start participating. I did not talk at all, but I did start slowly participating with other kids when I got more comfortable and they weren't treating me as different as they were before. That was one of the main things that helped me to get more comfortable was when people didn't treat me like I wasn't talking or participating uh when they just treated me like I was everyone else it was the, that lack of attention that helped me to progress a little more and I did end up not talking but participating and kind of and being around other kids and, and reading books with them but not talking just or playing games I remember there were games we would play every Friday like ants in the pants or little silly games like that that I loved and, and it got to the point where I was really enjoying it and playing it with the other kids and it was almost like I was normal but I didn't talk and that's what stuck. I didn't talk. So from kindergarten until sixth grade, I didn't talk to the teachers at all. I also didn't talk to some of my siblings 
who were older than me. I'm the youngest of six, and the only siblings I talked to were two siblings that lived in the house when I was younger that I was close to because they lived in the house. The others were already moved out because they were older and they had their own places, and I didn't feel as close to them, so I ended up actually not talking to them. When they were around, I would, you know, play or, or be social, but I wouldn't speak out loud to them. And that was something that started around the same time I started school. So it wasn't just teachers and kids in, in class that I couldn't speak to. It was even my own siblings. So it really just depends, at least in my case, it just depended on how close I was to a person and how comfortable I felt with them. And since, and since I wasn't with those siblings as often, I didn't feel like I could open up to them. So the only people I really talked to when I was very young ended up being my mom, my dad, and the two siblings that lived with me. Now, in the first few years of school, I didn't talk to the kids either. I started participating once I got comfortable. I would partake in you know, gym class, anything I needed to do. But when it came time to speak out loud, whether that be reading, doing a presentation, anything, recess, playing with kids, I, I just would not speak out loud. I still couldn't even ask to go to the bathroom. That was a that was a big challenge for me because, you know, there are times where you have to go to the bathroom when it's not a break. And every other kid would raise their hand and ask to go and they would go. And I couldn't do that because I could not talk out loud. So I would hold it and it got pretty painful at times. And it just, it was pretty miserable for a while there. But I there was one time where I did go home. And I wet my pants because I, I didn't ask to go. And my mom saw that and she realized that it was pretty bad since I couldn't even ask to go to the bathroom. One thing selective mutism really taught me, and I joke about to this day, is a serious form of control, which is not always good. I learned how to control myself in such a huge way that it can still affect me to this day where I'm always looking to control something and I have a need to control. That's something I'm very aware of now and I do work on. But I mean, I'm sure a lot of us have issues like that. But but a lot of people would, would say to me, oh, how could you never slip up and talk? And what they don't realize is because even if I was comfortable in a social setting where I was doing an activity, speaking out loud was so fearful to me that, of course, I wouldn't slip up. It, it It's sort of like... It was a phobia. It was this serious, serious phobia. And of course, when you have a phobia, you're not going to slip up into the phobia. A phobia kind of consumes your mind and it consumes your actions. And that's exactly what it was for me. So it's kind of funny when people say that to me. But again, that's why it's important to raise awareness about this disorder because so many people misunderstand it and they have these questions. And it doesn't mean they're stupid. It doesn't mean that they're clueless or anything like that. They just they just don't see it as a phobia and they just kind of see it as like, eh, she just doesn't want to talk. So if you have a phobia of spiders, for example, you can be around a spider in a tank or something and be comfortable, but you're not going to stick your hand in there and accidentally slip up and be like, oh, I'm just going to stick my hand in there. Now, a lot of people go through bullying, of course, in school, and it's still a problem to this day. But as many of you are aware, a child is much more likely to be bullied when they're different from others, and I was definitely different. I was always labeled as the girl who doesn't talk, the silent one, the quiet one, the one with the issue, who knows? I mean, all the kids in the class 
they knew I didn't talk. They just didn't know why. They they sort of knew I had an issue, but they didn't really know what it was. And But they kind of just got used to it because I was in the same class for six years with most of the same kids. So they, they got used to the fact that I didn't talk. And that's who I became known as. And it made me cringe back then, and it sort of still makes me cringe to this day to to know I was known as as the quiet one or the the silent one, the quiet girl, the one who doesn't talk because it's it's not really a title you want to be called. It's it's not terrible. I'm sure there are a lot of worse things you could be called, but come on, you don't want to be known as that different. So of course, I was bullied uh, quite a bit throughout elementary school. I. Uh, most of the kids were kind, but there were a few that I, I can remember that would that would pick on me because they knew I wouldn't say anything. And there's one boy in particular that I remember very early on, and he ended up luckily not staying the whole six years. I think he was only in the class for one year, and then he switched schools. But I do remember he used to pick on me every single day, and it was torture, and I was so scared to go to school. And uh, he would pull my hair. He'd push me. He would say all these mean things to me. And one of the things he loved doing was taking a an assignment that I did that I had to turn in. And he would steal my paper. And he was a lot taller than me. And he would steal my paper and he would wave it around and say, "How? Oh, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Hi, I got your paper. And he would put it on the top of a like a filing cabinet or something where I couldn't reach it or not even on the top actually he would throw it behind the filing cabinet and and he would laugh and he'd walk away and when it came time to give this paper to the teacher I didn't have it and the teacher thought I didn't do the work and I couldn't come out and say well so and so did this and I, I, I think I told my mom a little bit about it but I mostly just I always felt like I was a burden because of this problem I had and I never wanted to put too much attention on it so I kind of sucked it up for a lot of the time but it was torture and I was so so relieved when he ended up leaving but that's just some of the stuff I, I had to deal with that one was one of the harder ones and you know when traumatizing things stick with you no matter how long ago it was I still remember his face. I still remember his name. I won't call him out on here, but uh, those kind of things do stick with you. And it's important to heal those things, as I learned a lot farther in the future when I was an adult, to um, to heal those things because they do stick with you and they do affect you even if you, you're not aware of it. Another thing I remember about the difficulties in class was when the teachers all were aware of what was going on with me. And a lot of the time when we would get report cards, even though I had an issue I I couldn't deal with because they didn't know a lot about it and because it was still something misunderstood, there was a section on the report card that would say participation in in class or something. And, you know, when you're in elementary school, you get you get the satisfactories and you get the unsatisfactories and the unsatisfactories, the use are pretty bad. Uh, You don't want to get the use. Those are like F's in elementary school. So I would always end up getting a U on the participation um, until I was a little bit older. I think some of the teachers ended up giving me an S because I was participating, just not talking. But one of the things we joke about now is selective mutism gave me that bad grade, but it also gave me a very good grade every report card. And that was 
the section that said refrains from unnecessary talk. And I remember that phrase because it was always the one that I got excellent on. I would get those E's, excellent, because I didn't talk. So refraining from unnecessary talk, you know, is when you're talking when you're not supposed to in class, you're talking to other kids, you're, you know, not paying attention. And that I never had that problem. So I'd always get those those E's and, and that was perfect. But it wasn't normal either. I mean, it's, you know, most kids would not get an E. They would either get an S or a U. You don't want the U's, but the S's are pretty okay. Because, you know, once in a while you want to talk, fine. But that was my experience with report cards. <laughs> And I'm glad that I can look back now and kind of chuckle over it. But at the time, it really was it was nothing to really laugh at. It was just it was just concerning. But we were dealing with it in the best way we knew how. Now, as I got into first grade, second grade, I started making friends. I remember one of my first best friends was a girl named Pamela, and she was the first friend I remember really ever talking to. Uh, it started off whispering, and And I started whispering to her when I felt like she was treating me like everyone else, when she didn't put attention on the fact that I didn't speak out loud, when she just treated me like everybody else. And then I would whisper and she didn't make a big deal out of it. And I just felt more comfortable to talk to her more. And eventually I talked to her still quite low, but I still talked to her and she would come to birthday parties at my house and and she just accepted me for who I was. And she, she didn't have selective mutism like I did, but she was very shy. And I think we kind of bonded because of that. But she didn't end up staying the whole six years either. She eventually moved schools, which was kind of heartbreaking for me because she was my first real best friend. But as time went on, I did become friends with a lot of the other kids, especially when I was in some of the higher grades, like third and fourth grade. And I would whisper to them. And and it got to the point where I would even whisper in class and joke and, and talk at recess. But I would still not talk out loud in front of the whole class. I would still not talk to the teacher. I would still not read if, if my name was called. One of the other problems I had was was when we would have substitute teachers and, and the substitute teachers weren't given any guidance to me because they didn't know any of us. They just were filling in for the teacher, mostly just for a day, and that was it. So a lot of the substitute teachers would, they love to read out of books and go down the rows in the classroom for people would take turns reading a paragraph and whenever it would get to me, I would stay silent and it would be really awkward <laughs> because they would say, oh, it's your turn. And I would just sit there and not say anything. And they would be like, what? Um, you need to do it. And it started off that way early on. But then as, as the years progressed, the kids in the class would kind of back me up a little bit. And they would always say, oh, she doesn't talk when it would get to me. And... <laughs> Oh, so cringeworthy for me inside, but I, I, it was kind of a relief too because it was like, okay, good. I don't have to sit here in silence and they look at me all weird and everybody's waiting on me. At least these kids are kind of telling this teacher what's going on so they can move on. And that was the whole thing I was really concerned with. I just wanted the attention off of me as quickly as possible. And I didn't want to have to read. That kind of became a normal thing with substitutes where I would just say, oh, she doesn't talk. And sometimes they'd say, oh, okay, not ask any questions and move on. It was somewhere not that easy. And they would say, what do you mean she doesn't talk? She's going to talk. She has to. And they would take it the wrong way and think I was just being rebellious. And those are tough moments for me. I remember always feeling extra anxious when I would see a substitute in there in the morning and know that that was a possibility. And it would consume my day. Um, 
I would always be in fear of that happening throughout the day and then or the minute they would say, okay, we're going to do out loud reading. Even if I was the last one in the rows, you know, I, I would be anxious the entire time because I knew eventually when they got to me, it was going to be this big thing. Now, in addition to whispering to others, I would shake my head yes or no all the time. Open-ended questions were very difficult for me. Uh, it would be awkward. <laughs> Even with strangers outside of school, you know, it would be awkward. They would be like, oh, do you not talk? Why don't you talk? Can you talk? They would always think I had a problem. I was couldn't talk, like not capable of it. They just didn't understand. And, and it, it definitely led to many, many awkward experiences and uncomfortable situations. My mom would always talk for me. As I got a little bit older, I would point to things if I had to or do whatever I needed to do to get out of the uncomfortable situation of an open-ended question. And people would say, what, cat got your tongue? And they would joke and they'd say, why don't you talk? What's wrong with you? Uh, oh, you're so shy and, and just, just things like that. And, and again, shyness is you can usually just talk even if it's not often or even if it's a, in a low tone. But I believe it does have some similarities to an anxiety disorder involved in talking out loud. But again, it's not the exact same thing. Even if they're shy their whole life, you know, that they don't let it stop them from doing what they're told. So I continued going to therapy throughout school, and I would have a therapist come to the school once a week, and we'd sit in a room, and I knew exactly what I was there for. I knew exactly what was going on. I just couldn't talk. I couldn't control it. I was, my fear was bigger than my courage. Now, one of the other major things to happen to me when I was a kid was um, unexpectedly losing my father when I was 10 years old, and I was in the fourth grade. And that was... Uh, difficult for me because it was just another thing that made me different from others. And I remember really, really hating that at the time. Uh, of course, I loved my father dearly and I had my own grieving process and it, it was difficult. But I tried to, in those first years, I tried to, I think it just one of the coping mechanisms for me was to kind of block it out and just pretend like everything was normal. And of course, that was impossible as time went on but I remember wanting to go back to school right away it happened on a Friday and I wanted to go to school on Monday and I begged my mom to let me go to school and and she did and and they advised the teachers what was going on and the teachers were very very sensitive and very sweet and and trying to take care of me but I just didn't want to be treated differently it was just another thing that made me different because most kids didn't lose their dad when they were 10 years old and none did in that class, I don't believe. So I remember feeling like I really wish the kids didn't know about it. Uh, a few of them heard it from others that got around, but I was really, really hoping that nobody knew about it. And it was just the way I dealt with it. And I just, overall, I just didn't want to be different from others. I already had this different thing going on. I didn't want another thing, but here it was. And, and I tried so hard to pretend like it all wasn't happening. And that was something that was, something that's interesting to think about now. And it's kind of dug deep into the whole meaning of that in my own healing process as an adult. But, but we won't get into that. But that was another thing that affected me during this time. So guys, I'm going to stop there for a second, and for the first time ever on In the Know with Erin Glow, I'd like to introduce you to Love Letter Break.
welcome to the first episode's Love Letter Break. Now, Love Letter Break is something I created as a break in each episode of the podcast that is inspired by a 30-day love letter challenge I took on earlier this year. In the challenge, which is one I sort of made up myself, I challenged myself to write one love letter a day for 30 days straight to anyone that I wanted who's made an impact in my life in some way. It could have been someone I never met. It could have been a family member, a friend, a teacher, uh, someone who's living, someone who's passed away, an animal, anybody or anything that's affected my life in some way. The whole reason I took on the challenge was because, because I always thought it was silly how most of the time we don't really tell people, especially if they're not people who are involved romantically with us, how much they mean to us and the difference they've made in our lives. And since my creative outlet is usually writing, because I am a writer, and that's where I find my voice to be the most honest and in-depth, I wanted to write these letters to people. Because, I mean, I really think that we should be telling people how much they mean to us and how they've affected our lives when they're still alive. I always thought it was kind of weird how most of the time we're only talking about how people have affected our lives in eulogies or social media messages after they've already passed on. Why don't we take the time to do that when they're still here in that sense and, and we're able to see them and, and tell them face-to-face or even on the phone or any way that we can tell them. So I did write 30 letters for 30 days straight to people that may not necessarily have expected it. I encourage you all to take on that challenge If you can, uh, you don't necessarily have to write long love letters, but just call someone up, you know, tell them how much they mean to you. Take them out for lunch when we can, when we can get together again and just, just let them know through your voice if you, if you want to. I just think it's really important for people to actually hear what they can do to make a difference sometimes. So that's what inspired this love letter break. And the whole point of love letter break is I'll be asking each of my guests for every episode to come up with three people that have made a difference in their lives and create a sentence for them, or even a couple sentences if they want to, to just let people know how much they mean. Just take a moment of your time, of your out of your day, and express gratitude. So I can't wait to hear all the answers my awesome guests will have. So since this first episode is all me, I'll be taking on the love letter break right now. And I've already come up with my three people and my three sentences. So here we go. My first person that I like to express gratitude for is my first best friend, Pamela, who I spoke about earlier. And this is to Pamela. Pamela, thank you for accepting me for who I was and for being by my side when I needed someone most. Simple, but effective. Now, my second person is my kindergarten teacher from the third school I ended up in, Mrs. Whalen. I haven't spoken to Mrs. Whalen since I had her class, but I still remember her to this day because she was the first teacher who really made me feel comfortable and accepted me even though it was awkward and it was just difficult to deal with sometimes. So Mrs. Whalen, thank you for your kindness and your patience with me, even though you most likely had no experience in dealing with a student that suffered from selective mutism like myself. And thank you so much just for sharing your knowledge. And the last person is actually a collective of people. And those are the therapists that helped me get through selective mutism when I was a child and in my teen years. So to those therapists, you provided me with moments in which I could 
at times unknowingly, face my fears and have a safe place to talk about my anxiety, which is something I will forever be grateful for. So thank you guys for listening to that very first love letter break. Really exciting. And now we're going to go on to the rest of our episode. So in part two of this episode, I'm going to be talking about how I ultimately overcame selective mutism, but how it can still affect me to this day. So at the end of my sixth year of school, I made a pact to myself that I was going to attempt to start talking out loud. The thing that gave me the motivation was I was about to start middle school, so it was a new school. Most of the kids were new. There were a few that I knew from elementary school, but I was just hoping I didn't end up in the same classes as them because they knew me as that girl who didn't talk. And I wanted to just be known as Erin and just somebody that was the same as everyone else. So I said, okay, this is my chance. I'm going to speak out loud when I expect it to, and I'm going to stop this. And that's exactly what I did. And it wasn't easy, but I promised myself and I did it. And I will never forget the first time I spoke out loud in a classroom. It was for a presentation. And I remember my heart beating so fast when I got up in front of the class and and everybody else, you know, just thought, oh, it was just nerves, but nobody really knew how big of a deal that was for me. Not even the teacher at the time, because nobody really knew my background in this middle school. And I just went in there. I, I spoke probably in a low tone, but I did it. And it was like the biggest achievement for me inside because no one else knew. And they were just like, okay, they clapped when I was done with the presentation, but they had no idea that that was my breakthrough right there. That was a moment that forever changed my life. And it was a moment I had to myself and no one was around for it. None of my family members or other friends, but it was a triumph that I had with me, myself and I, so to speak. And I think it was good that it was that way because the whole anxiety disorder started with just myself and I had the breakthrough with just myself and I needed to prove that to myself to just kind of prove that I could do it and prove that I could let that courage win over that fear. So that was my breakthrough moment as far as speaking in class. Uh, I did speak whenever I was supposed to, but I didn't speak when I wasn't expected to. I wasn't a big talker. I was still known as a quiet person. But going from being known as the girl who doesn't talk to the quiet girl was such an achievement (laughs) that nobody could understand except for me. But I was proud of it, and I was so happy that I I did it. And from then on, I I spoke in class throughout high school, everything, but I still wasn't a big talker. I only spoke when I needed to. And I would speak to my friends though, you know, the friends I made and I I started speaking to them in school. And it, it just felt so good to kind of have that freedom and not be so afraid anymore. Even though I was still afraid, I wasn't letting it run my life. Now, as far as my siblings go, because they were still my siblings and it wasn't new siblings like these new kids in school, I had a more difficult time opening up to them because, again, they knew who I was when I didn't talk. So when I did talk, I remember just I didn't want it to be this huge deal and everybody would focus on that because that was what made me uncomfortable. So it did take me quite a few years to finally talk normally to my siblings. And that that's an interesting thing, but it's it's life. And that that's exactly what happened with my situation. So the process was long. I wouldn't say I overcame it in that moment of doing the presentation because I still didn't talk to the siblings. And it was still a process where I went from speaking really low to a little bit louder to a little bit louder to speaking normally to friends, you know, whatever, more family members. It was just a process and it took a while. 
but that was the the stepping stone that led me there and to speak in class even if it was only when I was expected to was such a major achievement for me and I didn't turn back once once that happened now since I've already talked to you about growing up with selective mutism and how it affected me and how I eventually overcame it so to speak I wanted to kind of touch base upon how it has affected me as an adult. Now it hasn't completely gone away because there are times where I get very nervous to speak out loud in certain situations. The only difference between then and now is that I actually do it and not let the fear defeat the courage. My voice might be shaky sometimes, it might be low, I might stutter, I might stumble over those words, but I still always choose to speak instead of not speaking when I'm expected to. Now, do I voluntarily speak on a regular basis in certain social settings? Not always. In fact, sometimes I can be very quiet and just kind of take in uh, what I hear from others, especially in large groups. And, and it can be considered rude sometimes by some people. I have been told that uh, where they think I'm just not interested in talking to them or or they just think I'm, I'd rather be elsewhere. But all in all, it still is that fear inside that if I do say something that give my opinion on something, for example, the fear of attention in the wrong way, the fear of saying the wrong thing, the fear is what I have to say as important as what these other people have to say. And that's something I have to regularly keep myself in check with because that can be an issue. And I'm just so happy to say that I feel like I have progressed quite a bit and there'll be some days that are better than others where I'll willingly speak and, and speak my piece and I'm quite impressed with myself inside. But then there are days where I just feel a little overwhelmed and feel like, oh, I can't do this. So there are ups and downs like with anything. And it, of course it does, that fear does still affect me. It's just, I don't let it affect me speaking out loud. But since I have overcome a lot and I have learned what I've learned, I just, I 100% believe that any child who is suffering from selective mutism and any worried parent who is wondering if this will, you know, affect their ability to, to live and lead normal lives or happy lives, I mean, I just want you to be aware that I believe it's 100% possible for them to overcome this and live a happy life because I'm doing it myself and you know there are days where I feel happier than on other days but that's life and that's normal and everybody feels that way and and we're allowed to feel that way we're human we go through all these experiences do I still have all that fear sometimes of course but I know how to deal with it I know how to let it out and I know how to do it in a healthy way have a healthy advice and uh, that's something I'm incredibly grateful for and that's so much of the reason I love telling my story because I feel it's important for people to understand what's inside the mind of somebody going through that and how they can get over that and how they can lead normal lives and how they're just like everybody else in some ways and quite different in other ways. One of the other things that keeps me in check and helps me to choose courage over fear is sharing my experience with others and raising awareness about selective mutism as much as I can. Now, I've been doing that in a few ways. Uh, the first way is I've been working on a memoir slash self-help book, if you will, that is based around my experiences with selective mutism and growing into an adult. And I'm hoping that will be published in the near future and can help and can help as many people as possible. The other ways that I've been 
helping myself and attempting to help others is by working with the Selective Mutism Association. I volunteer as their state coordinator for the state of California. And what that means is I assist parents uh, in finding therapists and answering any questions I can about my own experience with Selective Mutism and just guiding them in the right directions. I've also uh, held support groups for parents and friends and family members of kids with selective mutism, and I've shared my experiences. I let them share theirs to find a common ground and feel like they're not alone. I spoke at a conference for Selective Mutism Association. I got to share my story with others, and it was a great opportunity to do that because you have all these people, all these therapists and parents and just people wanting to know more about the disorder in one place from all over the world. And I got to share my experience with them, give them my information if they needed more information, if they wanted to speak to me. And it just felt like such a great thing to be able to help people in that way. And one of the other things I like to do is raise money for the Selective Mutism Association whenever I can. And I did hold a fundraiser in LA a few years ago at at the Comedy Store, which is one of the most famous comedy clubs in the US. Uh, so it was unbelievable. I pitched the idea to them. They were all for it. And I got to host this incredible comedy show that raised money for the association. And it also raised awareness because I got to tell people a little about my experience. We had some parents there who got to speak on stage about their experience. And we had some awesome comedians just donating their time and their talent to to raise money for a good cause and, and to give people some laughs to kind of really stress. And we raised quite a bit of money. And I remember before the show, one of the cool things that happened was because it is a, you know, a, a really famous comedy club not to brag, but yes, I want to brag because this is for the Selective Mutism kids and that's such a huge opportunity for them. But I did get to meet the actor and comedian Polly Shore, whose mother, who's passed away now, uh, owned the comedy store. So he's always hanging out there. I got to meet him. I got to tell him a little bit about the disorder and why I was hosting the fundraiser. And I also got a chance to speak with the director and actor and producer this huge talent in Hollywood films is uh, Judd Apatow. And he actually dropped in my show, asked if he could be a part of it. And he opened it and he was awesome. And we talked before the show and he asked me, what is selective mutism? I've never heard of that. And I, and I got to tell him and he, and he talked with me and he was like, Oh, I'll look into that more. That's interesting. And, and he thought it was a really great idea what we were doing. So that just, you know, that's two people, two celebrities, <laughs> nevertheless, that, that I got to introduce to this disorder that may not have been introduced to it otherwise. It's in the comfort of their own comedy club. And it's things like that that I'm so grateful for. And I just want to use any kind of platform I can to keep raising awareness, to keep helping so the kids can have an opportunity to learn how to slowly but surely get over this hurdle of this fear of not speaking out loud. They've done so much over the past few years for selective mutism and it's so amazing to see how we have how we have organizations with it now and and there's some incredible uh, facilities that help with it and summer camps and and like I said these annual conferences that bring all these selective mutism related people together and we've just come such a long way with it and 
and I'm incredibly happy that we have all these resources now. So just remember, kids with selective mutism, they're not mentally disabled. They're very aware of what's going on. They just simply have so much anxiety over speaking out loud and sometimes participating in things. It's a phobia like any other phobia. It may make them different from others, but they're just still the same human beings who deserve love and time and effort to get better. So before we wrap up the episode, I just wanted to give everyone out there who wants more information about selective mutism or who has a child with a disorder or suspects their child may have the disorder or any other family member or friends or anything, you can go to selectivemutism.org. That's the Selective Mutism Association's official website. They're fantastic. They have so many resources on there. There's so much information and just events and, and all kinds of things. And, uh, and there's ways that you can find therapists in your area, even just for a consultation. They have all that information on there if you browse around. So again, that's selectmutism.org. You can also go to my website, eringlow.com. That's E-R-I-N-G-L-O-W.com. And go on the Selective Mutism tab. And I do have SMA's information on there as well. You can also go on the events tab. And anytime I do like a support group or some kind of Selective Mutism related event, it'll be on my website as well. You can also email me, Aaron at eringlow.com. If you have any questions, I'd be happy to answer or guide you in the right direction to a therapist or support group. I wanted to end things with a few tips taken from selectivemutism.org on how to relate to a child with selective mutism. Number one, talk to the child, but don't expect a response right away. Number two, play alongside the child following their lead in the player activities of their choosing. Feel free to praise their play and describe what you see them doing as a way to engage them before they might be ready to talk with you. Number three, when asking open-ended questions, wait at least five seconds for a response. If non-responsive, give two to three specific choices for the child to choose from. Finally, if still not responsive, provide a chance for the child to respond non-verbally. Number four, do not try to force the child to speak or ask why he or she is not talking. This will only increase the anxiety. Do not act surprised or make a big deal over it if the child begins to speak, as this may embarrass the child and cause a setback. And finally, number five, just enjoy, have fun, and get to know this child who has so much to say but needs some time and help saying it. So guys, in conclusion, what I've learned from having selective mutism is that having a voice is extremely important, and using that voice is even more so. A voice is powerful, grateful. Just to be kind, you can use it to make a difference in the world. When I look back on my experiences with this disorder, I do remember some of the tough times and the tough people, but even more so than that, I remember the kind people and the people who accepted me for who I was, the non-judgmental ones. The ones who let me know that even though I wasn't using my voice at the time, I still had one, and they would be willing to wait for me to feel comfortable enough to reveal it to them. And finally, I'll be ending every episode of this podcast with a special question that's related to selective mutism and the importance of a voice. And that question is, if you could say just one more sentence or phrase out loud for the rest of your life, what would it be? And for me, it would be always choose love, for love is what lasts, 
know what makes all the difference in the world. I'd like to leave you with an inspirational quote from one of my favorite writers of all time, Maya Angelou. History, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived. But if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Thank you so much for joining me on this very first episode of In the Know with Erin Glow. You can find me at eringlow.com and Erin Glow on all social media. Please subscribe and rate this podcast. It would help me greatly as I continue to progress and give you more episodes as time goes on. Thank you so, so much again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this first episode, and I hope you'll return for more. Check back here for part two of the three-part topic, and that'll be selective mutism, the parent's perspective. Until then, I hope you all glow and shine bright.